I, I've got this kind of image in my head of just writing that's the job in my favourite font, which is Druk, and just leaving it at that. <laughs> Condensed or extended? Oh, as wide as possible. Extended, yeah. Druk wide is just lovely. Okay, and we'll just see what we've got. Because that's the job. I think that's the thing that we want to do is just almost have an unedited, frank and candid conversation rather than um okay let's wait for the play button to go and then just kind of mythologize or uh just spew out a, a series of practiced anecdotes which to be honest I, i've started writing out a few anecdotes <laughs> hi i'm craig burgess i'm co-owner and creative director of genius division based in barnsley in the uk let me just grab the Hi, I'm Richard Baird, founder and editor of bp and I'm just concerned that I don't want this to be um, another graphic design podcast where it's all sort of uh, cheery music and like, hey, welcome to this and this and this and, and, and we're just going to talk about our privilege or um, <laughs> our white male privilege and, and completely disregard certain uh, struggles or difficulties that other people have. That I want this to be, uh, as I said, really frank. We're not entertaining them in the traditional sense of cracking jokes and being this like funny duo, but we're entertaining because uh, we're honest and we keep on making mistakes and I'm making mistakes again and again. Last week with the illustrator, I don't know whether you caught that on Twitter. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned about the client not liking it. Yeah, and I feel like I'm, I'm two years into graphic design again, um, where you expect to have made that mistake so long ago. It's almost embarrassing to write it out on Twitter because you're thinking, well, someone that's my age has probably dealt with all of those things and thinks that I'm an idiot and I should have learned it by now. But I am such a slow learner. I kind of have to learn myself uh, for it to go in. So, so what, anyway. <laughs> what happened then? We the client really wanted illustrations in in their, as part of their uh, corporate communications. Um, they're a law firm, and the way that they talk about their business was was very part of that was we were trying to change the way they were talking about it, but also to lighten a lot of the documents that had the pages of, of uh, fee structures and things like that. So it made complete sense strategically. Um, and because there's a marketing team between me and the partner that was running the whole program, um, I had to go out, find some illustrators, put some samples on the page. They would look at it, then they would send it to him. And then I, I flew over there and I presented some ideas. And I was like, this is what I really believe in, this kind of style. Um, and I went out and found an illustrator and said, look, I really like what you're doing. I'd written about him before on BP&O. Um, as part of another design exercise and I thought the simplicity of his line work the uh, visual storytelling there was an economy of line but a richness of visual storytelling which I thought was fascinating and I thought oh, I could just leave it to him to do it uh, and I, I briefed him up with all of the different practice areas that were required to be um, captured in, in a story in a simple visual expression 
And what he came back with felt, visually it was beautifully done. These were just sort of those quick initial sketches. Um, however, there were certain things that were slightly not right for the um, uh, geographical location of the company, which was the UAE. And it's just best to avoid certain things that had any sexual connotations or, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Or uh, for insurance, we had something like a, a plane falling out of the sky with a parachute on the back. Um, where my mind just went straight to terrorism, that kind of thing. And that, that really kind of got the client in a bad place. So that only went to the marketing team. That didn't go any further to the partner. And I said, look, these aren't working. I'll have a conversation with the illustrator. And what we can, and, and, and I said, this is sort of the issues. And he said, look, no problem. If you want to, hammer out some ideas yourself, we'll illustrate them. I thought, fantastic. No money had been exchanged at this point. It was, he'd put in the quote, we'd accepted the quote. There was a clear, you know, we're going to do some ideas and then there'll be time to deliver those ideas as final illustration. And the mistake I made at that point was he hadn't put in 50% from the, to the client. Uh, in the same way that perhaps you and I would do, we would say up front, can we have 50%? It's uh, uh, both both client and a designer shows some form of commitment to the project and, and risk as well, because we always do more work than the 50% allows for, right? So that was mistake one, is that I allowed the seniority or what I perceived as the seniority or experience of the illustrator to almost overwhelm my understanding and my approach of how I would be hired. So I wrote out the ideas, um, he illustrated them, came back, marketing team got it, thought it was okay, they sent it over the partner, the partner just hated it. The issue is that the partner has a very strong instinct and aesthetic sensitivity, which is that he had seen the work I'd done for Logo Archive, like the materiality and stuff like that. But what began as a very strategic exercise and everything rationalized has now become very instinctual. It's, I don't like that, which is problematic um, because you can't really fight that with a rational um, argument of why can we come back to this and say, this actually communicates what needs to be communicated. So because the illustrator hadn't had that financial relationship with the client, the, there wasn't an exchange of money. But when it came back to me saying to the illustrator, um, they want to cancel the project, um, can you do anything with the invoice? And he comes back and he says, well, um, if you pay 50%, we'll just cut the deal. And to me, that is really, really generous. It's, it's as I would expect. Uh, it's completely reasonable. I presented that to the client. That went up to the partner and he was like well we didn't get anything we shouldn't pay anything for it um and i of course wrote my long email <laughs> that sort of described the whole thing and i felt like this is one of these things that i needed to do at the very beginning that i should have known better for um and it just made me liable because i believe in good relationships with other designers that if i have to pay it 
then I'll pay it at my own expense because um, one, I made the mistake of, of not doing or pushing the illustrator to take 50%. But also there's an integrity, right, that I may want to use that illustrator again in the future. Um, I like his work. He has been completely um, honest and open about his pricing and his fees. Um, so it really just falls back on me. And, and that's essentially what happened. Um, yeah, it's the, those kind, it's all nice when a project goes well uh, and everything, everyone's happy and stuff. But then when things start to go bad, I think you often see the true side of people. And if you can come out of the other side, of a bad situation with everybody still maybe not friends but everybody still respecting each other that that's a good solution but it's not always easy to actually get to that what, what about yourself have you you presumably deal with uh, external contractors and has there been a case where you've um perhaps not exchanged money up front or um had a case where a contractor did actually under deliver on a on a brief and and it was difficult for you to pay for that how how do you judge whether they've hit the brief yeah that's one thing that's coming to mind it luckily it went well in fact we did it twice um, we haven't got any internal photography expertise so whenever we do kind of a, a brochure or anything like that I, I know a bunch of photographers whose styles are like and we'll use them for particular projects and I was working on this, so it's, we've got a, a, jewel, a jewelry client, that's hard to say in a Yorkshire accent, um, we've got a jewelry client and they wanted to do a brochure, so we'd, we'd worked with them for a long time on their web stuff and they'd been using other agencies for their print stuff. Uh, basically it's every year they put together a brochure and it's full of they basically select pieces to put in this brochure and they photograph it and they photo it all themselves in-house uh, using external agencies. And I've always wanted to do this project. It's, it's a really fun project. And for that project, I knew that I'd have to use an external photographer and put all of my trust in somebody who I knew could do a good job, but I needed to know that they were going to work the same way as me, which which is, is really tough. It, it didn't go wrong. Thankfully, it went it went really well. So, uh, and what do you mean in terms of uh, worked like you? Um, because we'd we'd never worked together directly on such a close project. So the way that the project was set up, because the jewelry cost so much money, we had to do it over a series of days in their basement in a small okay. area. So we only so the way I basically charged for it was a certain amount of days. So we said we were going to spend four or five days in, in their cellar, basically, making this brochure. So I knew that I was going to have to work fast, but I didn't know whether the photographer would work at my same level. Do you know what I mean? Yep. So I, I didn't have a clue, and I was I was fretting about this project for months. Uh, and I think you often do your best work when you're like that, because you, you, you're terrified of doing it. I was shitting myself, absolutely shitting myself, because I never... This, this, this is why we're doing this right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's to learn from it. I, I'm not yeah. used to doing any of this kind of thing. So, yeah. I, I, I were really scared about doing it, because I didn't know if I would be able to rise to the occasion myself, because I, I never art-directed something 
with jewelry in this particular way client the client put all the trust in us to do it and I didn't know whether the photographer was going to be able to work like I did because we never worked in this way before so even though the the end result was fantastic and the client loved it that kind of situation there really made me nervous about what could go wrong because if we if we would have spent a few days down there and it wasn't feeling right that would have been really tough and I would have been in a similar situation to you because the way we set up the project is they invoice the client directly so we we was kind of um, I can't remember who ever said it but they said when you work with freelancers or other people outside of your agency work in kind of a, a three stool methodology so each person is directly working with the client so there's there's no there's no the agency is controlling it all they are not a freelancer for you they are working directly with the client so they were invoicing the client directly but if that would have gone wrong the client would have still said well the stuff you've done was shit so i'm not going to pay you uh, so this is this is jumping off from that then that some people would um hire the clients through their agency in order to mark up the the photo- photographers of work did you not fancy doing that um i, I believe that's like this is another issue that I've had is whenever I hire external contractors, I, to minimize my own exposure um, to uh, potential uh, financial problems is to just directly um, link the supplier and the client together. But I know that it's very, very normal and for a design studio to, to take on all of that responsibility and mark it up with whatever percentage is, is uh, to cover management costs and that kind of thing where do you sit on that in terms of uh, genius division the reason we chose not to do that is because we have worked in kind of a excuse me we've worked in kind of a white label fashion before as an agency for another agency so sometimes we do web or digital stuff for people or other design work and it's never worked well and you know that the client knows that you don't really work for them Everybody knows that it isn't true. And I think somewhere down the line, the client knows that they're getting ripped off. Mm-hmm. So we, we've we never wanted to be like that. We're very transparent and honest with the way that we work. And when we have worked in that relationship as a supplier, where it is, where everybody's been aware of everybody else, the projects have always gone much, much, much more smoothly. So whenever we do bring somebody in, we always just say... Um, this so you need a copywriter or, or whatever we recommend this person we've worked with them loads give them a ring we'll introduce you and then we'll we'll basically just explain the project to them and work with them directly but you'll pay them directly mm-hmm. we don't get any financial gain out of it but the project runs very very smoothly everybody's happy and um i i I've always seen it as kind of it's it's a way to almost make a quick book by um, taking on a management fee at the expense of the overall quality of the project. In terms of client relationships, quality the the resulting project might still be brilliant, and I'd hope it would be. But I do think the client relationship suffers a little bit, and then you kind of get to that really uncomfortable bit where we've been before in the past where you might do a couple of projects with an agency and they're using you as a white label 
and then they want you to get an email address for their agency and then they want you to start answering the phone as their agency and then you might accidentally slip up and send them an email from your own email address and then they kind of know and everything gets a bit weird you know what i mean but I think that um, if you have a, a design studio that is dealing with, say, a university, where the university um, marketing team are dealing with quite a lot of different um, factors, that they don't actually want to fold in having to uh, think about the management of photographers and copywriters. They'd rather just work with a design studio that can manage all of these um, aspects. And I think that's where there is a value add is where the client is just saving themselves any kind of administration um, aspects, managing those. So when they come to them, it's like an all-in. They know exactly what they're getting. They're getting a fee structure with a breakdown um that the design studio uh knows which 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 photographers or copywriters to work with they've got good relationships with um and that actually in itself is a service is finding those people they've done the time and that they should be paid for that kind of experience and relationship yeah i i think there's there's merits to doing both ways i don't think either way is wrong but I, I do think there's, even, no matter which way you're doing, there's this kind of a level of honesty that you have to have with your client that some agencies often don't have. Sometimes you find it because they have no in-house expertise themselves and they're actually dressing it up as they have that in-house expertise. I think that's where there can be problems with that kind of, uh, basically whenever you're trying to hide it, I think. Mm. I don't Perhaps... Perhaps we can uh, explore how, um, so at the moment, and perhaps just slightly before the current situation that we're working in is, um, I was getting a lot of work. Um, I have BPNO and Logo Archive. I was looking at how, how can I scale? Um, how do I find uh, freelance designers that can support me, that have uh, a process that uh, synergizes with my own process, that they are experienced and good at what they do, but I can also afford to hire them. Um, so this is the, the the problem I'm having at the moment. I know you now you have your company Genius Division, and you have uh, do you have employees? Yeah, yeah. So there's five of us. So I think uh, what I would be quite interested in uh, from my point of view and I hope our listeners would find quite interesting is how you moved from um you were you an employee beforehand before you started genius division yeah so how you move from being freelance to having a company and then finding those people that you could trust and particularly you're in Barnsley <laughs> um so I'm not sure what the uh how many designers there are whether there's a university producing uh, designers there or so how did you go from that to taking the risk of hiring people and what are the financial sort of consequences and difficulties <laughs> around that because you're putting uh, your you're exposing your company to potentially um, a financial risk yeah i think i think there's there's several levels to it first of all barnsley so for for anybody who doesn't know what kind of barnsley is it's a very small town that sits in between 
a couple of larger towns that have got quite good reputations. So there's Leeds, for example, that generally has a reputation for SEO and digital and things like that, particularly locally. And then we've got Sheffield just at the other side, which is obviously the home of the Designers Republic. So tons of designers will have seen their work, everything from Wipeout to Apex Twin and uh, stuff like that. So we sit in the middle of those, in the shadow of those. We're a, a much smaller... We are a town, not a city, so we're much smaller. We're not known for anything. It's just a town. And we, in terms of uh, culturally, so we we were all over the news when Brexit came around for voting 70% to leave. So Bre- uh, Barnsley's kind of... Um, colloquially known as kind of being a little bit backward maybe maybe a bit racist um that's the public opinion but it is changing which is which is good um so we're not known for a creative and digital sector and it's very small but we do have a really cool building in barnsley called the digital media center which is where most of the creatives work which is a gorgeous building so things are changing which is good but from that perspective that obviously comes with the talent thing so we have a local college, Barnsley College. Uh, they have a university kind of division type thing. Um, so they, they do small courses. There used to be a graphic design course on there, but that got cut due to a lack of uh, numbers, basically, which is a shame because uh, the guy that ran it had, had run it for a long time. And inside Barnsley College, they've got letterpressing equipment and they've got loads of uh, kind of... <laughs> quote marks old school stuff that still has a lot of value in design they've, they've got lots of letters set in there just yeah just basically everything everything you can think of as a designer that you want to get your hands on they've got it and then they lost their graphic design course and then we've never kind of had any any real web design skills locally or anything like that so it, it was it's tough for us to find people and the other agencies in Barnsley struggle with that too but that is often uh, that's that's a, a UK wide thing, really, in terms of talent. We're always being told skills gap, skills gap. We're one of the biggest growing industries, the creative industry, so we struggle with that anyway. Um, but I think more so in Barnsley. So in terms of the staff that we've hired, so there is there's five of us, uh, three of us are directors. So as typical of any design agency, the majority of the staff are people who own it. Uh, so. The two. Oh, that that sounds really interesting. Actually, that you you think that that level of um, uh, uh, accountability and investment that is a is a good place to start finding people where you you that if you almost can't uh, afford to hire at that level, that bringing them on at the top level and saying, look, you can have a portion of the pie new business, all of these things is everybody's responsibility to bring in, uh, and we'll all flourish from that. Yeah, well, when we started Genius Division, it was me and James. So we were the original two directors, and then we brought another person on who we'd known for, for a lot of years as to give us some technical backing. So he came on as a technical director, and we, we gave him a third of the company, basically. So yes, it, it, in, a, in our early days, that's that's the way that... The only way we could have done it, We'd, we couldn't afford to hire, hire uh, technical staff. And I don't know whether they would have had the the right drive either to you know the the right philosophy and we might have ended up losing them because technical staff are really difficult to find and they move around a lot and also in Leeds and Sheffield 
Sky have recently opened places there too. So they've swept up all of the local developers and all of the local technical people. So the way that we've developed staff is actually developing them from scratch ourselves and getting them invested in the company. So we every every person we've had in terms of uh, developers or designers, two of them have left now. We've, we've got uh, one developer who's still with us over the years anyway. Um, and we've always took them either out of college or earlier than that. So the current uh, developer who I'm thinking of in this in this instance is been with us. Uh, I think it's four years now or five years, and he knew nothing when he first started, literally nothing. And he, but he wanted to come in to learn, so we let him come in, uh, showed him a couple of things, and he just kept coming in. And what and what's the the because this episode is about money? What is the um, financial uh, framework for that in terms of did you bring him on as an intern and and then um, he was part of a program with the intention of making him a junior designer using sort of conventional uh, design uh, structure or um, was it um, uh, did did he did he do it for free to begin with? He did he did it for free to begin with. Um, not not for too long, but he, he was he was coming in. It, it was literally off his home on back. We we wasn't forcing him to come in. He wanted to come so in purely there was to a, learn. A nice quick pro quo though that yeah. he was getting some real hands on experience. That you were clear that um, once he reached a level, there would be employment for him. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And as soon as he got to a level where we could start uh, basically selling his services, we we employed him in a part-time role initially and then just built it up because when he was first learning with us he was working at kfc at the same time so he was he was he was coming into us to learn stuff and we'd show him stuff and and we we didn't get him to do client work or anything he was literally just coming in just to learn and he kept coming in so after that we just started giving him a little bit more and a little bit more and then he became part-time and then full-time and then is basically a full-time developer now which is awesome but that's that's the way we kind of had to do it particularly locally and also because we we are still a small agency so it's it's tough it's tough for us to take on very experienced staff and so did was the um that when when you took on your uh, other partners and the the intern was the the client work there and you just didn't have the capacity to do it or um was it that you hired these people speculating that once you had them on board that you would be able to offer more services so you didn't necessarily have the 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 new cash flow as such to begin hiring these people but you took the risk we we've always uh, we've never hired just because we needed to because of the work's there and equally, we've never done it the other way around as well. So if we're suffering and we need more staff, we've still never hired. So we've we've always hired when we feel... That, that's where the risk is, where, where you need somebody, but you haven't had the time to do the research, the, the chemistry, all of these things. So it's it's even a higher risk, right? Because you, you start paying these people uh, when you need them to deliver rather than training people up and, and getting them integrated in the in the studio culture ahead of having that sort of 
big client work. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. I, I can't remember where I read it once, but somebody said hire when it hurts. So, <laughs> so just just basically hold on. So when you think you need to hire someone, you might have just got a big job in, and you think you need to hire somebody, you probably don't at that stage, and you hire somebody when you absolutely are desperate for somebody. And even then, we have never hired. So we, we've we never put a job advert out. We always find somebody who fits with us. So, so it's, it's, it's a bit of a different way of working. And we've always, we've always managed to succeed with that. But we're not a big agency. There's only five of us. We're intentionally small and we don't really want to hire a lot of people where it's, it's still very much, uh, the director's part of the business, you know, when we're not sat just finding all the work where the ones on the tools where the ones doing the job and we've so you you've never wanted to hire a studio manager or accounts manager or anything like that at this point we've we've got a studio manager effectively uh, who handles um all the stuff we don't want to do <laughs> but she she is brilliant she is the the reason why we can do what we do she's the she's the one who makes sure everything's balancing make sure she keeps pestering us when we're ignoring to reply to emails all the stuff that designers are really crap at she 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 picks up on and she does a really good job of it of organizing us so that was one of the best hires that we ever made and uh, that was one of the first hires to actually to get somebody in to help us organizing stuff with the admin side is that the difficulty i'm facing at the moment is that um, because I'm just a, a one-man company and I've been self-employed for 15 years and I've handled everything, um, I, I can feel how amazing it would be to have somebody do the client side, the account side, whatever, all of those kind of things. But the reality is that I don't have enough work coming in consistently for me to actually say, now I'm going to do that, that uh, my productivity uh, would probably still be the same because the same amount of work would come in or that um, it's it's the chicken or the egg, right? Do you hire the, the person in anticipation of being able to do a more outreach uh, and then just risk the, the, the expense or how long can you last for with the money that you have in, in your bank account? And uh, I've, I've always struggled with this. Um, well, she, she she was the first hire that we made, so that was the thing for us. We were thinking, can, can we afford this? Um, you know, and in the end, it becomes a point where you've got to just take that jump and you've just got to decide and see what happens. And, and going back to where we started, so where I went from as a designer to an agency to where we are now, we've had to make a lot of those little jumps over t- over time to actually just say fuck it and just try it because there's only so much planning you can do and there's only so much only so much money you can get in the bank or then something else happens and you've not got that money anymore and, and until you find yourself in that pressurized situation we found that you can't anticipate it you can't anticipate it so much and you, you won't ever do it because you're just trying to anticipate it. The best example I, I had of this is when James and I were both still working jobs as designers. So we were working at different agencies. We'd been freelancing, but we were just doing it on the side on weekends and things like that. So we were very comfortable. We, we were doing 
stuff that we wanted to work on, which was fun stuff, and then we also had an agency job. And we we both wanted an agency. I've always wanted an agency. I don't know why, but it's just something I've always wanted to do, Run basically work for myself. I often think freelancers, for some reason, think like that. You don't end up falling into freelancing, I find. It's just that you want to work for yourself and do it your own way. And we we wanted that. And a couple of other people knew that we wanted to start our own agency. We wanted to go full-time freelance. And they kind of never, never believed in, in us that we were going to do it. And never took us seriously that we were going to do it. And it got me thinking that we we just have to make the leap to make those people believe in us. So we got one month, we got, and I always remember it, we got £2,000. So on a job that we'd done in our spare time, we had £2,000. And we were both working at home at this, at this time. I thought, right, we've got £2,000. That's one month's wages, each of us. So I had £1,000, James had £1,000. And we said, we're going to quit. We're just going to quit as jobs and just just try it and see what happens. And this had come from a conversation with another person who ran um, a development agency. And we were saying to them, well, you know, what can we do? How can we start? We haven't got enough money. And he just said to us, have you got a mortgage? No. Are you working at home? Yes. Are you living at home? Yes. What would happen if you can't pay your bills? And we were both like, uh, nothing. Like, yeah, you won't be able to afford to pay your bills, but so what? Find another job. So, after that conversation, we just said, Right, we've got a thousand pounds each, we're going to quit. We quit our jobs, started Genius Division, and basically, that's been the philosophy ever since. If we run out of money, we just go get a job. Because as you continue to be a freelancer or run your own agency, that experience just compounds. So, if, if any of us were to leave Genius Division now. If Genius Division was to shut down tomorrow, we'd all be able to just walk straight into really good jobs because we've basically, we, well, we have, we've run our own agency for five, uh, for 10 years now. So that experience is just, you can't buy that. It's just another level to an employer, uh, to an employee of another business. So that was the first kind of leap we made and we just kind of had to do it. Do you know what I mean? I do. I, um, my experience is, I never see it as these brave leaps, but, um, occasions of necessity. Um, when, when I left university, I had no job to go into. Um, and a friend of mine, um, I'd stayed in the city that, that I studied, which was Nottingham. And as you may know, a lot of people leave, or go back home no one really stays in the city that they, they studied in or that was my experience at the time and um one of the chaps that i i studied with had left and he'd worked with a furniture design company as part of a live brief um as part of uh, our, our learning experience and he'd recommended me because he wasn't able to do it and i went in um and said look i can do it um And at the end of it, it gave me a check. I had no idea what to do with that check. Um, I knew I had to pay tax on it. It was, it was 300 quid, but I had, I think I had like, I had like 300 quid in the bank and I knew I could never, I couldn't go home. That, 
that was just not my upbringing. As soon as I left for uni, I felt like I'd left home. I, my father would never see me homeless, but I would never almost be able to ask him for money. And so, but what I can ask for is advice. And I said, well, dad, I've got this check. I know I have to pay tax on it. What should I do? And he said, you should just register as freelance and just risk it and just do that. So I never thought, to me, I, I'd always, my father had freelance, but I'd never considered it at, at that early stage in a career that that was a, an appropriate route. I had no experience whatsoever um, in, in commercial design in, in any field. Um, and here I was with a 300 pound check registering to be self-employed um so you almost had this sense of um i know what i want to do and i'll risk it whereas my experience was i don't know what i want to do i actually don't even know i'm risking anything i'm just doing what is necessary to survive and this is the thing that is really important to me in in these conversations we're having and particularly around money is there are ideals in design. There are things that you want to be and things that you want to do. But the most fundamental thing that young designers need to know is you need to do whatever you need to do to survive. Um, if that means doing uh, working at KFC and doing a bit of work in a design studio, um, there, don't expect to have a plan. Um, I've just fallen into things and and this is the narrative I tell myself is that it was never planned there's no there's a series of anecdotes that perhaps people will learn from but it was never planned it was always an accident um, I took what I could to try and survive I lived on such little money for so long um, and the only thing that kept me going was that I was a designer and it's an utter privilege to be a designer I think um, uh, th there are so many different hard jobs out there that people are risking their lives and particularly now that if you can survive as a designer that is a success and you know you can expand your vision for what you want to be by a month by two months and then six months um, or you can just do what I do and it's like you have an idea and then you you do it at as little expense or the only expense is your time and that's the sort of beauty of the, the online world is you can build something like logo archive up if you have an idea you can do it for free um, so it's quite interesting to hear how you had a very clear vision of what you wanted to do and I did it at that stage but I think oh you don't know what comes next are you completely <laughs> dissatisfied now <laughs> I know I I'm not dissatisfied, but what I did find, um, I want to return to the accident thing because I think that's really important. I think even though I just made it sound like I had everything planned, I didn't have the career plan to be a designer. I never wanted okay. to be a designer. I wanted to be a policeman. Oh, really? I wanted to be a policeman. I, I just I kind of almost accidentally fell into design. So even though that I am a designer now and it's completely part of me and I could never do anything else, I never always wanted to be a designer uh, and I think it's that you know as humans we we tell stories and we tell narratives and we start to link all our past things together 
into a nicely woven narrative and it, the, the actual narrative isn't how it happened in the first place and it's just the way that you remember things and you start to weave it together and the survival thing I think is really important and the accident thing is really important because particularly young designers have a danger of looking at successful people so people who run design agencies or the design celebrities uh, and even people like you people who run uh, so you've got a big audience on Instagram you've got a big audience on Twitter and they look at you and people who run agencies as kind of that's where they want to be that's who they want to be but the the way that they've got there is often by accident it was never planned and the only way that they've got there is by putting in a lot of hard work and spending 10 15 20 25 years being nobody and i think as a young designer and it's not just exclusive to designers i think it's kind of the society we live in now we we've got to be careful that we don't see the results of someone's efforts which might be 150,000 people on Instagram, and say, I want that. It's it's the process that you need to go through to get to and that. You make a very good point. I think there's a, a confusion between um, having a large followership is not credibility. Um, it, it, it and not money either, necessarily. Absolutely. Um, the, the, there was a point where I was getting... Um, overwhelmed by or almost manipulated by um, what you call algorithmic governance, how Instagram controls um, your capacity to speak with other people or for them to see what you have to offer and actually twist that into a a commercial or imperative where um, you are the, not the product in a sense, but the the raw material in which to be mined and packaged up in which they can insert a series of, of adverts or that, that you can be um, really the, the trading that goes on is between advertisers. There is no sort of uh, contractual agreement between me and Instagram. Um, Instagram has decided that I have 155,000 followers. Um, and 13% of that of that followership sees what I post now. In the past, I was working harder and harder, trying to reach more and more people without a, acquiring a, a, an expense by paying for that. But it's very, very hard to unravel that relationship between audience and credibility, where if I post something and it doesn't reach many people, that represents that that solution or that design has no credibility, that it requires such a degree of, it's like a self-confidence or uh, a belief that what you're doing is credible and right for your client and not needing that feedback. But it's a very, very powerful thing to have a lot of people looking at what you're doing and saying, yes, it's good. 
each of those individual people has their own understanding of what they believe is a credible design solution. It's not the collective that you need to understand, but um, finding those people that might have a, a relevant experience within that and, and reaching out and having a conversation with them. But I can still feel that pressure. And that pressure also to spend money with Instagram to reach that followership that I'd spent time going. And this goes back to money is there are so many different things that are asking for your capital uh, when you're growing. When do you spend money? And this also goes to awards programs. Is, is it worth spending money on awards programs? And that was something I wanted to bring up with you is that speculative component, the, the relationship between uh, industry, prestige, and uh, capital. Um, are you an award-winning studio, Craig? Uh, the only award we ever won was for a hack day that we entered. And that's still in our office with the wrong date on it because they printed <laughs> the wrong date on it. And <laughs> that's the only award we've ever won. Did I- you pay for the actual physical trophy? No. No, that yeah, it's a free one. It yeah, it was it was just a fun a fun day. Uh, yeah, the award the award stuff the award stuff. What to say about that? It's that's that's to some extent a little bit like Instagram, um, or Twitter or Facebook. So the credibility thing. Yeah, you you see the fact that they are an award winning design studio, just like they might be an award winning design studio with. 30,000 followers on Instagram and you presume they are better than everybody else at what they do and you presume you should be aspiring to be exactly like them but often the truth of the matter is that that's not true at all and the the way that people win awards is by buying them 